I want you to turn in your Bibles tonight to the book of John chapter 21. John chapter number 21. And uh, I'm proud that you came to the Lord's house this evening. We get to look down on all those people that laid out because they love their uh, their spouses tonight. Amen. And uh, you just love the Lord more. That's why you're here. Amen. I'm trying to get some of you men off the hook. Amen. You could be anywhere tonight, somewhere eating buffet prime rib and cheap chocolate covered strawberries. But you chose to come to the Lord's house and I'm proud that you did. John chapter number 21. To honor that, I'm going to preach on the topic of love this evening. I know I could push you over with a feather. You weren't expecting that. But there is a thought that God has laid on my heart, and I just want to share it with you tonight. John chapter 21, let's begin reading in verse number 1. John chapter 21, verse number 1. We'll pray over these requests uh, when we pray and ask God's blessing on our service. The Bible says, after these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. And on this wise showed he himself. There were together Simon Peter and Thomas, called Didymus, and Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, and the sons of Zebedee, and two other of his disciples. Simon Peter saith unto them, I go a-fishing. They say unto him, We also go with thee. They went forth and entered into a ship immediately, and that night they caught nothing. But when the morning was now come, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples knew not that it was Jesus. Then Jesus saith unto them, Children, have ye any meat? And they answered him, No. And he said unto them, Cast the net on the right side of the ship, and ye shall find. They cast, therefore, and now they were not able to draw it for the multitude of fishes. Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved saith unto Peter, It is the Lord. Now, when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he girt his fisher's coat unto him, for he was naked, and did cast himself into the sea. And the other disciples came in a little ship, for they were not far from land, but as it were two hundred cubits, dragging the net with fishes. As soon then as they were come to land, they saw a fire of coals there, and fish laid thereon, and bread. Jesus saith unto them, Bring of the fish which ye have now caught. Simon Peter went up and drew the net to land full of great fishes, an hundred and fifty and three. And for all there were so many, yet was not the net broken. Jesus saith unto them, Come and dine. And none of the disciples durst ask him, Who art thou, knowing that it was the Lord? Jesus then cometh and taketh bread and giveth them, and fish likewise. This is now the third time that Jesus showed himself to his disciples after he was risen from the dead. So when they had dined, Jesus saith to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me more than these? He saith unto him, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. He saith unto him, Feed my lambs. He saith to him again the second time, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? And he saith unto him, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. And he saith unto him, Feed my sheep. He saith unto him the third time, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? Peter was grieved because he said unto him the third time, lovest thou me? And he said unto him, Lord, thou knowest all things. Thou knowest that I love thee. Jesus saith unto him, feed my sheep. Verily, verily, I say unto thee, when thou wast young, thou girdest thyself and walkest whither thou wouldest. But when thou shalt be old, thou shalt stretch forth thy hands, and another shall gird thee and carry thee whither thou wouldest not. This spake he, signifying by what death he should glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he saith unto him, follow me. Let's stop there and pray. Father, we love you tonight. Thank you for letting us be here this evening, Lord. We've come with hearts heavy with prayer requests and burdens, and we have shared those petitions with each other. 
Lord, we know that you've heard them, but now, Lord, we we turn our attention directly to you and share them deliberately with you, asking you to work in these matters. Lord, the things we've mentioned tonight are beyond our ability, beyond our resources and beyond our wisdom. Lord, even if we had some resources, even if we had meager ability, Lord, even if we had an ounce of wisdom, it'd be insufficient for your will to be accomplished in our life in these matters. So we pray that you would answer these things according to thy will. Give us wisdom and give us patience as your will is wrought in our lives. And Lord, I pray that you would answer these in such manner that we might see clearly your hand. Lord, that that might be occasions not just where problems are resolved, but where praise is rendered unto you, that we might be able to point others towards these things and say, look what my God did in my life. Lord, I pray that you'd be with the the sermon tonight, that you'd give clarity to my words, Lord, but beyond that, that you would take the word of God and wield it as the sword of your spirit tonight in each and every heart. And may Christ be magnified through all that's said and done. Lord, we love you. We thank you for loving us. And we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. You know, when you read through the Gospels, you'll find that John, uh, of all of the, the disciples, had a unique and keen perspective on the topic of love. John spoke about love more than any of the other disciples. In fact, you'll find if you just go through a cursory search of it that that word love or some variation of it is found 14 times in both Matthew and in Luke. It's found eight times in the book of Mark, but 39 times the word love is mentioned in the book of John. In fact, you'll find on the very evening before our Lord's crucifixion that 20 of those times take place in which the Lord is teaching his disciples what love is, what love means, and how love can be shown and rendered towards him. When you think about the conversation that Peter has about Peter's love for the Lord in John chapter 21, I think it's important to note that this is not a man who is a novice in the perspective or idea of what divine love means. I mean, understand that certainly even were these things mentioned prior to Calvary, they would have had plenty of examples of what the love of God looked like. But I'd remind you it wasn't prior to Calvary, it was after Calvary. And the Lord is talking to Peter and expressing his desire for Peter to show sincere love, for love to be rendered unto him through sacrifice, worship, and obedience. In other words, if there was ever anybody that should have understood what it meant to love someone, it should have been the disciples of Jesus Christ. When I read about the ministry of the Lord and the love of Christ that they would have understood at this moment, I think about the love of God and how it was expressed in three ways. Number one, in the life that was sacrificed. I mean, again, the Bible tells us this was the third time that the Lord had appeared to his disciples after he had been raised from the dead. All of this is set starkly against the backdrop of Calvary. This is not something that happened in the distant past. I mean, they were still presently aware of how much he loved them because he had shown it to them when he died on Calvary. The Bible describes how that Calvary is the expression of God's love. For us, first John chapter three, verse 16 says, hereby perceive we the love of God. Here's how we can know that God loves us because he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay our lives down for the bread. I would also remind you of Romans five, chapter five, verses six through eight. This most of you could quote this even as I read it. The Bible says, for when we were yet without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. 
For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Peter had no excuse to wonder whether the Lord loved him. He had seen it through the selfless act of Christ on the cross of Calvary. Can I say this? You and I as New Testament believers never have any reason to doubt the love of God. If you believe in Calvary, you ought to be firmly settled and resolute in the reality of the love of God. You say, well, preacher, sometimes God lets things happen in my life I don't understand. And I'm aware of that. There's things happen in my life that I don't understand as well. But that's no cause to doubt the love of Christ. We can look at what he did when he died for us and tell how much that he loves us. I would say the life that was sacrificed was good evidence of this love, but then also how that love was shown to us. John himself would write about this in 1 John chapter 4. He would say in verse 10, Herein is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. In other words, not that we earned that love, not that we did something to be deserving of that love, not that we did something to procure that love, but rather that that love was uninstigated on our part. He loved us not because of who we are, but because of who He is. John would say in verse 19, We love Him because He first loved us. But then the love that God has towards us and the love that they would have been keenly aware of at this moment in their lives is not just vested in the life that was sacrificed and the love that was shown, but also in the life that was shared. It's something I don't think we really think about very often. But listen to what John says in 1 John 4, 9. He says, And this was manifested the love of God toward us, because that God sent His only begotten Son into the world that we might live through Him. We always talk about the love of God being expressed by His dying. But we rarely talk about the love of God being manifest in the fact that we can live because of what he did on Calvary. You know, when you love somebody, you want the best for them. You want the best kind of life for them. Uh, Probably the clearest way to understand a parent's love is to understand it through that lens. That if, if a parent loves a child, they often do everything they can to try to give them the best possible life that they can ever experience. They express that love in trying to give them a life that is worth living. We know God's a wonderful heavenly father. And he's done the same thing in your life and in my life. You want to know if God loves you? He loves you so much that he didn't just die for you. He also made it possible for you to live for him. He desires for you to live a life far transcending what this world can offer. I think one of the great tragedies of modern Christianity is is how low we live relative to how lofty our salvation is. We've just contented ourselves to just barely live different than the world and to just barely uh, hover and, and barely skim above where we were when Christ saved us. What a tragedy that is. Instead, man, we ought to just plunge ourselves deep within the love of God And recognize that that love is manifest in the fact that we don't have to live the life that we lived before we knew the Lord. So when I read this passage of Scripture, it's important, understanding the context, to recognize that Peter is a man who is not a novice in this concept of God loving him or of his responsibility to love the Lord. And yet here we find him in John chapter number 21, and he is struggling in the area of his love for Christ. So, preacher, how do you know he's struggling there? Because that's where Christ zeroed in on. One of the things that we can rest assured of is when the Holy Ghost speaks to us about something, uh, it's needful. He doesn't speak to you for no reason. When he deals with you in your life about something, there must be some issue that needs to be resolved. When he speaks to you about some matter in your life, it's because there must be something wrong with it. Now, it doesn't matter how high our opinion is of ourselves or of that aspect of our character or of our behavior. If God's dealing with us, there must be a reason for it. 
You say, preacher, how do you know Peter is struggling in his love for the Lord? Because that's what the Lord is dealing with him about. And it's a reminder to you and I that though, boy, how do I say this? Our idea of how much we love him and the reality of how much we love him can be vastly different. I have no doubt that everybody in this room would say, I love the Lord. And I believe you probably say that in sincerity. But the question is, are you brave enough to allow God to put to question that proposition? Do you have the courage to stop and assess how much you love the Lord and answer yourself honestly with whether you yourself are struggling to love him the way that you ought to love him? I'm going to preach to you on this thought for just a few moments tonight. Do you love me? Christ looked at Peter and he said, do you love me, Peter? Lovest thou me? How that must have wounded him to hear that. You know, when the Holy Ghost deals with us, it's not a comfortable thing. We don't like to be to be questioned in, in our devotion, our consecration to Christ. And very often, I think, we will use that as a means of deflecting the working of the Holy Spirit in our life. And we, like Peter, when the Lord touches on that in our life, we will act so wounded and scandalized and injured. Lord, Thou knowest that I love Thee. When I read this passage of Scripture, I would say this, that an outside person, unbiased, assessing the situation, would probably reasonably question the love of Peter the same way that Christ does. I want you to notice three thoughts tonight, and then I'll be done. You don't believe that, but it's true. I promise my, that's what I was getting my wife for Valentine's Day, is a short sermon. Amen. So we'll see how much I love her. Let me notice three things about Peter's love. Now, all three of these things, some of them I would say are negative, but really they're all just simply pragmatic. Uh, today, of course, is Valentine's Day. At least that's what I've been told. And uh, it's a day when love, whatever that means to society, is celebrated and appreciated. It's really a day where florists and chocolate makers and Hallmark are loved and appreciated. But it's a day when this topic and idea of love is is much talked about. But I wonder what the biblical perspective is on love. And I wonder if we were to assess and examine our professed love for Christ in light of that, I wonder what we would come away thinking about how much we love him. You know, that's one of the main areas most believers struggle in. You remember the church at Ephesus? I mean, the very first way the church began to depart from their devotion to Christ was in losing their love for him. The very first place that you in your life will begin to stray is losing your love for him. I want you to notice three things about Peter's love, and then we'll be done. Let me say number one tonight, it was a questionable love. Now, here's what I mean by that. I don't mean there was anything inappropriate about it. I don't mean there was anything that was uh, cynical about it. But I do mean this. Christ is not unfair in asking Peter this question. As we said a moment ago, most of us would be scandalized if God just walked through the door and looked at us and said, Toby, do you really love me? I'd probably respond the same way Peter did. I'd probably say, Lord, how could you ask that? But when we stop and look at Peter's behavior, I think it's reasonable that Christ questioned his love. Let me notice three things about it. Number one, this was a prompted question. This question is not without some reason behind it. I don't know if you're aware of this, but Peter hadn't been doing too hot lately when we come to John chapter 21. I mean, really, Peter was a man that was always getting himself into problems. Uh, he was always sticking that big old size 12 fisherman's boot right in his mouth. But particularly of late, he had really not been on a hot streak when it came to saying the right things, doing the right things, and behaving in the right way. I mean, you go back just 
Not long before this, and you'd see Peter standing in a garden with a sword with blood dripping off of it and a fellow's ear laying on the ground. You'd see him rebuking Christ to the face and, and telling Christ that what Christ was saying was wrong and inappropriate and incorrect. You'd find him following those that would crucify our Savior and cursing Christ's name and denying him. And then here in our very text, you find him abandoning public ministry and turning back on his commitment to Christ and walking away from him. You know, here's a stark reality I want to just set before you tonight. If people looked at your behavior, could they tell you love Christ? I don't doubt for one moment that Peter did love the Lord. I don't think he was lying when he said, thou knowest that I love thee. But you sure couldn't tell it when you looked at the way he had been behaving. If people looked at your life, if they looked at your faithfulness, could they tell you love Christ? If they looked at your giving, could they tell you love Christ? If they looked at your witnessing, could they tell you love Christ? I wonder if people looked at the level of witnessing we do, if they'd walk away thinking we are proud of Christ or embarrassed at Christ. That's all right. It's Valentine's Day. It's love, love fest. That's what we're doing, right? If they looked at your faithfulness, where would they think your priorities lie in your life? Would they say that you love the church just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it? Or would they probably say, well, it falls somewhere in the top of his priority list, but probably not at the very top. I wonder if they looked at your Bible reading, if they would walk away saying you love the word of Christ, that you'd rather hear from Christ than anyone else. Hey, if you can't say amen, say oh me, that'd be all right. Because the truth of the matter is, we like to think that love is this squishy, abstract, nebulous thing that cannot be looked at and cannot be assessed and cannot be examined. And yet, in a thousand ways, uh, every single day of our life, we do that. We assess and examine the prospect of different people's love. But then we get so scandalized that God would look at our life and our love and examine it in that same light. This was a prompted question. It didn't come out of nowhere. Christ didn't just wake up that day and say, I'm going to see if I can hurt Peter's feelings. But rather, in light of how Peter had behaved himself, this was a perfectly appropriate question. And I wonder if the Holy Ghost says to your heart tonight, do you really love the Lord the way that you say that you love him? Would that cause you to stop and to assess your life and ask yourself this question? Because here's what Peter should have said. Instead of saying, Lord, thou knowest, he should have said, what would make you ask that? What about the way I'm living would cause you to wonder, Lord? I wonder if the Holy Ghost just zeroes in on your heart tonight and your love for him. I wonder if you have the sincerity to stop and say, I wonder why God would wonder that thing. I would say this was a prompted question. Number two, I would say this was a primary question. It's interesting to consider it in light of what the Lord did ask Peter and what he did not ask Peter. He didn't say, why did you betray me? He didn't say, why are you out here fishing, Peter? He didn't say, Peter, why did you curse me? He didn't say, Peter, why did you give up on me? As you see at the heart of it, asking this question, asked all the rest. See, I understand there's much more to Bible Christianity than just our affection of the Lord. But the reality is all that runs downstream of that affection towards him. There's a lot in your life that gets straightened out if you'd learn to love him more than you love anything and anyone else. Love him more than your kids. 
Love him more than your family. Love him more than your spouse. Love him more than your job. Love him more than your hobbies. If you'd learn to love him more than everything else, you'd be amazed what else would get sorted out down the line. So, preacher, wasn't it a problem that Peter had denied him? Sure. But if Christ addressed this, he would never have to worry about Peter denying him again. You see, Christ got to the very heart of the uh, of the problem, the very the very crux, the very essence of Bible Christianity, which is our devotion and affection towards him. And you can have a lot of things right in your Christianity, but if your love of him is wrong, then it won't be long and everything else will go wrong, too. And you might have some things in your life that need work. I'm not under under the delusion that when a person gets right with God, they no longer struggle for everything in their life to be right. I understand people can surrender their life to the Lord and yield to him and, and, and even give him the preeminence in their life. But they're still flesh. They're still flesh and bone. They're still weak. They're still infirm. They still have areas that God has to develop them and cultivate their life. I'm aware of that. But I'm saying this. If you learn to love him more than you love anything else, the work will get done in your life. You don't have to run around and find a hundred books to tell you how to do it. You don't have to chase meetings around try to get in the best revivals in all uh, creation. If you'll fall in love with him, the Holy Ghost of God with the word of God will go to work in your life, cultivating and molding you into what you need to be. This was a prompted question. It was a primary question. But then I would note that it was a probing question. You've heard me say this before. But I'm just going to mention it again tonight. Every question that Christ ever asked was always rhetorical. Now, that's not just a cute thought. That's important for you to understand as you study your Bible. An omniscient God can only ask rhetorical questions. When you ask a question, typically you're seeking an answer. But how does a God that knows everything ask a question seeking an answer? Well, all of his questions are rhetorical. They're all asked for the express intent to either make the person being asked or the people that are within earshot and are listening to the conversation to cause those people to stop and to weigh and to consider and to ask themselves that very question. Peter said more than he realized when he said, thou knowest all things. And what he should have done is stopped and asked himself, if he already knows, why is he asking me? You ever had God ask you a question? God asks me questions all the time. Things like, what were you thinking, dummy? That's the kind of things God asks me. And when the Lord asked Peter this question, lovest thou me? It wasn't because the Lord wondered. It was because it was deeply important that Peter ask himself the question. See, here's the truth. It's not God that's in denial. and It's not the people around you that may be in denial. If anyone's in denial, it'll be you. And it's only you that can rectify that problem of being in denial. It's going to take you being honest with yourself before this can change. Nobody else can do it for you. The reason he asked Peter this question, he didn't look at John and say, John, do you think Peter loves me? He didn't turn around and say, Nathaniel, do you think Peter loves me? Now, he would have probably got any number of answers from them, and he would have already known what answers he would have received before he asked it. But he asked Peter because Peter is the only person that can rectify this problem in his life. And it's a reminder in your life and mine that at the end of the day, nobody can search that thing out but us. Nobody can get that level of intimate with God concerning our life but us. And that it is incumbent upon you and upon me to be willing to ask ourselves that hard question. Here's how I would ask it. Do I love the Lord? Number two, do I love him like I used to love him? Number three, do I love him the way I think I love him? 
Number four, do I love him as well as I can possibly love him? See, you're the only person that can ask these questions in your life. Other people can make judgments, assessments, criticisms, whatever they may do. But nobody can change that except you. And so Christ asked this probing question. It was a question of self-examination. So when I read this passage, I'm reminded that Peter's love was a questionable love. Let me give you a second thought tonight. Look at verse 15. The Bible says, so when they had dined, Jesus saith to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me more than these? He saith unto him, yea, Lord, and the Lord says, feed my lambs. You know, it's interesting, the question that the Lord asks in this passage. He doesn't just say, do you love me? He says, do you love me more than these? Now, commentators have debated and disputed and had various opinions all across the realm about what these are. And some people have suggested that he's talking about the other disciples. He's saying, do you love me more than these people love me? That's an easy question. The answer is always yes. <laughs> sure, Lord. I love you more than these other people do. I'm better than they are. And then, you know, probably the most uh, likely and, and reasonable interpretation is that he's talking about the fish that have been dragged ashore. And what he's saying is, do you love me more than you love these fish? Because remember, that these fish are a representative in Peter's life of his old way of living, his old manner of living. Peter, when he said, I go a fishing, he wasn't just going out to throw a line in and, and for recreational purposes. He was going back to his manner of, of life, back to his vocation as a professional fisherman. He was quitting on ministry and quitting on the Lord and going back to this different way of life. And the Lord is saying, do you love me more than you love these things? There's much we could say about what these are, but trusting you've been preached on and around and over the top on that topic a hundred times. Can I just make a simple observation? And that's that Peter's love was a comparative love. Let me say that all love at its heart is a comparative love. God doesn't ask us to love him and love nothing else. Wouldn't be very difficult were that the proposition. See, the difficulty is not loving him and loving nothing else. It's loving him more than we love everything else. Most believers don't struggle because they don't love the Lord. I believe that. I believe everybody probably in this room loves the Lord, varying degrees and, and measures. And the question is never really, do you love him? What it really is, is what do you love him more than in your life? See, here we get to the really the heart and the crux of the conversation, because most of us would say, well, yeah, preacher, I love him. But what is it in your life that competes with him? And is that competition close? I'll go ahead and tell you there's things in my life that compete with my love of him. I wish that weren't true, but I guess it's just the nature of being human. And I, I can't guarantee there won't be things that don't try to vie for his place of preeminence in my life. All I can do is make sure that they are a distant second and not in constant question all the time. You see, he asked this question to Peter because these fish are sitting right there. And they're sitting right there because Peter had chosen them. He had chosen them above him. He had walked away from the Lord and he had walked away from ministry and he had evidenced his love for those, but he hadn't evidenced any love towards Christ. You stop and think about it, and other than Peter's bitter tears, there probably hadn't been a single outward manifestation of his love of Christ from the garden till this point. 
And Christ looks at this big pile of fish and says, you know, what is it that you love the most in life, Peter? What is it that your life is all about? It's been about me, Peter, but now you're getting ready to walk away from that, turn away from that, and it's going to be all about this again. He says, I saved you from this. I, I, I transcended you above this, and now it's about to be all about this again, and that's what's going to matter to you. Man, within that, you had his family would have been involved. He wasn't a fisherman just for sport or for pleasure. That was his job. We know that Peter had a family. You say, how do you know that, preacher? Because he had a mother-in-law. Nobody would have a mother-in-law without a wife. Amen. And possibly Peter had children. No reason to believe that he didn't. And he is choosing that above the Lord. And you say, well, preacher, that's that's a pretty hard line. You're telling me that God wants us to love him more than we love our family? Well, (laughs) I'll just read the Bible to you. It's the best I can do. And listen to what he says in Luke 14, 26. If any man come to me, and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, in his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. You don't, you don't qualify unless your love for him outshines your love for everything else. I think most of us understand that it'd be disconstant with what the Bible teaches of hate and of love to believe that when Christ makes this statement, he is encouraging us to some ill feelings towards anyone. But we understand that it is, well, to use the word from the message tonight, compare it. It's compare it. It's not saying you hate your father, saying you love the Lord so much that when people look at the choices you make, it, it, because they can't see your love of God, they'll take it as hate towards your family. They'd look at it. You know, you stop and think about missionaries in particular, and I could probably give Various examples, but missionaries will suffice for the moment. You know, the, the world, the, the lost world, the secular world would look at them and wonder what they're trying to get away from. Selling everything they own, picking up, moving all the way across the world. What are they trying to get away from? What the world can't understand is it ain't what they're trying to get away from. It's who they're serving and who they're living for and who they love. It's not what they hate that they're leaving behind because they don't hate what they are Leaving behind, it's who they love that they're pursuing and following. Your life, I wonder if, (laughs) I wonder if you love him so much that the things that vie for him would look to be treated with neglect if somebody didn't truly know your heart. If your love for him is so consuming that compared to everything else, it rises and transcends above all other interests. And by the same token, most of us where we struggle the most, It's not that we one day wake up loving him less. It's that instead we gradually grow to love other things more. You probably never woke up and say, I'm going to love him a little less today. I'm just going to care less about him today. I'm going to be less interested in him today. That's probably not how that happened. Instead, probably what happened is you woke up and something caught your interest in your life. Something became an obsession. Something became an interest. Something became a focal point. And you never probably set out to leave your first love and quit loving him the way that you know he deserves to be loved. It's just something else began to jockey and vie for that place in your life. Because at the end of the day, love is always understood in comparative measure. The Bible makes it abundantly clear that our love for him is comparative. But then I want you to notice a final thing, and I'm done tonight. His love was questionable. His love was comparative. All of our love of the Lord is is comparative. But then I would notice that it was a calculable love. So what do you mean by that, preacher? It could be measured. 
It could be determined. It could be assessed. One of the things I think we're very comfortable with in life is the notion of love being so abstract that it really can't be quantified. And yet that's not the case. You can look at a person's choices in their life and tell what they love, tell what's valuable to them, tell what's meaningful to them. You can tell it by how much time they spend on it. You can tell it by how much money they spend on it. You can tell it by how much room they give it in the decision space of their life. You see, the fact is, we like to imagine that you really can't determine what your love of something is, but there's almost no emotion that is more calculable than love. You can more easily define how much a person loves something than you can how much they hate something or how much they fear something or how much uh, that, that they are jealous over something. You can determine what love looks like. It's interesting when you look in verse 15, Peter says, Lord, thou knowest I love thee. He says, feed my lambs. He asks him again. He says, thou knowest I love thee. Feed my sheep. He asked him again, Yea, Lord, I love thee. Thou knowest I love thee. Feed my sheep. And he finally says in verse 17, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? And Peter was grieved because he said unto him the third time, Lovest thou me? And he said unto him, Lord, thou knowest all things. Thou knowest that I love thee. Jesus saith unto him, Feed my sheep. And then immediately Christ launches into this statement. He says, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, When thou wast young, thou girdest thyself, and walkest whither thou wouldest. But when thou shalt be old, Thou shalt stretch forth thy hands, and another shall gird thee and carry thee whither thou wouldest not. In other words, he said, Peter, if you love me, you're going to do a hard thing for me. Love is generally measured by the difficult things. It's easy to do easy things. That's profound, isn't it? It's nugget, kind of nugget of wisdom you came to church for on a Valentine's Day evening. No, I mean, easy things don't prove anything. It's the hard things. You see, the question is not, will you serve him when it's easy? That don't really prove much. The question is not, will you serve him when that's what you want to do anyway? That don't really prove much. The question is, will you love him and will you serve him when it's not what you want to do? When it's not convenient, when it's not cheap, when it's not easy, when it's not simple? Will you be faithful when faithfulness is hard? He says, Peter, if you really love me, I can tell you how you can tell whether you love me. You can tell it by whether you'll do the hard things. I would just notice a few things your Bible says about understanding how much we love the Lord, whether we love him. Three things I think we can look at in our lives and determine how much we love him. I would say, number one, by our allegiance to Christ. First John 2.15 says this, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. Then it says this. I don't know. I, I guess in my reading, I, I've, I've not paid enough attention to this last phrase. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And what does that phrase mean? Does it mean the love that God has is not manifest through him? No. What it means is if you love the world, that will displace your love of the Father meaning how much you love him or love that is directed towards him or showed towards him or invested in him. That's interesting. John would say it in this way because I know all sorts of believers that do indeed love the world. And I think probably, at least to some measure, they love the Lord as well. But what we find is that that dichotomy is a struggle in their life. And it always will be. John talks a lot in 1 John about this world and its systems and its culture and, and its forces and influence. 
And what he's saying in this passage is that these two things are diametrically opposed. And that the more you love one, the less you'll love the other. Like the Lord himself would say about serving two masters, you cannot do it. It doesn't mean people aren't caught between two worlds. They are all the time. But what it means is they don't serve either one effectively. And what it means is if you love the world, you're not going to love the Father the way that you should. And if you love the Father, you're not going to love the world the way the rest of the world loves the world. And so that push and pull, that tension that exists, we could summarize it in this term, allegiance. Where does your allegiance lie? What has the right of way in your life? What do you love more than anything else? Is it this world, its systems? Or have you already made up your mind that Christ means more to you than what this world can offer? I would say by our allegiance to Christ. I would say, number two, by our obedience to Christ. Christ himself emphasized this in John chapter 14. I mean, I don't know how it can really be said clear. In John 14, 15, he said, if you love me, keep my commandments. That's it. There's a period after that. I mean, the Bible goes on, but I mean, that verse, <laughs> it ends at that just there. If you love me, keep my commandments. And we'd love to put a thousand different ellipses and parentheses after that. And all these different qualifying statements. But the Lord didn't. He said, this thing, I'll make it real, real simple for you. Obedience is a metric for our love. And we live in a world that's done everything it can to deconstruct that notion. And we live in, in, in just steeped in, in a Christianity that has has exerted millions of dollars and man hours and, and effort and marketing and propaganda in trying to put uh, subjective clauses in that verse. In trying to suggest that there are a thousand extenuating circumstances. And yet, no matter what man tries to do, it cannot escape the simplicity of that statement. If you love him, you will obey him. Preacher, I don't always obey him. When you're not obeying him, you're not loving him. I'm not talking about the love that exists in your head. And I'm not talking even about the love that exists in your heart. I'm talking about the love that exists in your life. You may love him with your mind and you may love him with your emotions. But do you love him with your life? The way we love him with our life is through obedience. It says in John 14, 21, he that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me. Christ says that that's how you can tell. You look at a person's life and determine that and tell that whether they love him and he that loveth me shall be loved to my father and I will love him and will manifest myself to him. Christ is emphasizing the fact that a healthy relationship with God begins with this notion of our devotion to him and our love of him. We can tell by our obedience to Christ. And then (laughs) there's one final thing. If you've hung with me this whole time, I might lose you here. Listen to what 1 John 4.20 says. I'm going to let the word of God plow me a path before I get there. It says, 1 John 4.20, If a man say, I love God, we would all say that, I think. If a man say, I love God, and hateth his brother, he is a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? And this commandment have we from him, that he who loveth God love his brother also. I would say our affection towards Christians is a good metric. Said by this shall all men know that you are my disciples and that you have love one towards another. You know, life's messy. Church is messy. People are messy. It's the way of the world. But be careful that in all of the in, in all of the context that you seek to inject into your circumstances that you don't bury the clear command of Scripture within that. 
Here's what I mean by that. You say, preacher, I know I'm supposed to love people, but people hurt me. Yeah, I know. Preacher, I know I'm supposed to love people, but it's not easy because sometimes they fail me. Yeah, I understand that. Preacher, I know I'm supposed to love people, but it's not easy because sometimes I have my own burdens and my own struggles and my own battles. I know that. But within all that, don't ever lose sight of the fact that you are indeed supposed to love the brethren. I think we've spent so much time validating the fact that hurt happens within the experience of the people of God that we've allowed it to become a a refuge that, that gives people the right in their minds to not love people with the love of Christ. And at the end of the day, it don't matter what you've been through. One of the ways that you express your love of God is by loving one another. Don't ever abandon that. Don't ever jettison that. Don't ever excuse that away. Don't ever absolve yourself of that responsibility. Because try as though you may, and even succeed in your own heart and in your own mind, it does not, in fact, alleviate you from that responsibility. And it it does not negate that from affecting your love of the Lord. If you really love him, you're going to love the people he loves. Even when it's not easy and even when they're obnoxious and all the different things and all the different qualifiers we could make. See, here's what we really have to get settled in our heart and mind is that God knows what he's asking of us. He knows what he's asking of you. And so it's never too hard. The question is simply, do you love him enough? Do you love him enough to even when it's hard to serve him, even when you don't understand to serve, even when it is agonizing to choose him above whatever that thing is in your life that is vying For his place. Do you love him enough to choose him above all? He said, lovest thou me more than these? That's where it starts tonight. Are you willing to be honest enough to assess and examine your life and ask yourself, is there anything in my life that I have let take the place of Christ? Then he goes on to describe how this love is is comparative. Is there something that that has robbed you of your devotion, but then also that it is calculable. Is there some task or some responsibility or some threshold that you'll not breach because you say it's just too much and you've chosen self instead of him? I'm just asking, do you love him tonight? And I guess I'm asking me that too. I ought to have the courage to ask that question. Do you have the courage to ask that question? Won't we have an invitation? And let's see. Let's just let God do a work in our heart this evening. Father, I pray that you take these next few moments. Lord, I'm aware this isn't an easy message. But Lord, I'm also aware that it's a message that I need, that I think many of us need in our life. We can let all manner of excuses ease our conscience. Or we could be honest enough to be willing to look at you and look at ourselves and ask whether we love you the way that we ought to. Lord, bless this invitation. Pray and magnify the Lord Jesus. He's worthy, Lord. We ask it in his name.